0: Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant, and if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome, we're glad that you're here with us. You come on the second week of a new series for the fall on the book of Revelation, so we'll be back in Revelation today. In chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 7, if you happen to be using one of our Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1028, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in, let's pray. Father, this book opens with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning uh, that you would unveil the beauty of your Son for us today. Pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are changed. We pray um, that you would work in us, maybe for the first time, maybe to renew deep love for you. And we ask for your presence now. We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this, you, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for His glory. A minute ago in his prayer, Brian mentioned that... Uh, Richard Baxter had said to preach every sermon as if it's your last sermon. So here we go. Let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. What is Christianity all about? If you were to boil it down somehow, what does God really want most from us? What does he want for us? I mean, that's really the question, isn't it? You know, what is this really all about? Well, we're going to find the answer... To that question here in the letter to the Ephesians, this letter from Jesus to his church uh, in, this little ten- in this little city in uh, Asia Minor called Ephesus. So we're going to see here as we look at that question three things. What Jesus knows, what Jesus wants, and how to get where we need to go. Those three things. What he knows, what he wants, and how we're to get where we need to go. First, what Jesus Knows. Do you see in these first uh, couple verses how many times it says that Jesus knows them, knows something about them? Uh, verse 2, I know your works. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Uh, verse 3, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up. Jesus again and again is saying that he knows them. He knows their work. He knows the character of their works, and he knows their very hearts. Now, that doesn't come maybe as much as a surprise to us. Uh, Certainly not if you grew up in the church. You're used to hearing that God sees everything, that he knows everything. But maybe we don't stop and think about it really that much that often, that he knows us. The chapter opens up with repeating an image from the end of chapter 1 where it says that Jesus is walking among the lampstands. At the end of chapter 1, he said that he was standing among the lampstands and that the lampstands uh, represent the churches of God that are represented as these lampstands in heaven. And Jesus is in the midst of them. And here it says that he is walking among them. What's he doing? He is not out for a stroll. He is walking among the churches to see them and know them and evaluate them, okay? He comes to these churches whom he loves, but he comes with observations and critique for these seven churches. He knows. In other words, um, he comes to them and as he comes to us, and he says these very real words: "I know what is going on in your life. I know the struggles. I know the successes." I know the points of tension that you think might break you at any moment. He says, I know what you are doing well, and I know where you still need to grow. I know. You know, we say the word sometimes as we're evaluating a situation or something comes to us, and we say, well, you know, I I know what's going on here. The rest of you all step aside, let me, uh, I see clearly, right? I know what's going on here, but even in those moments when we have that little window of clarity into something, do we really know what's going on? Do we know all that's going on? Do we know it from every angle and every direction? An ongoing lesson that I'm learning as a pastor is one that we're all taught growing up, that there are two sides to every story, right? And sometimes more, and uh that when we, that that we are called that when we say something like this, I know what's going on. Even there, we have such limited vision. But Jesus, when he comes to his churches, and when he comes to us and says, I know what is going on, he really knows. He knows it from every angle. He knows every extenuating circumstance. He knows every reason behind the reason behind the reason that you did what you did, or failed to do what you did, or and on and on and on. He knows us. And I'm belaboring that because that is the point where we must start with this realization that God knows us. Jesus sees us and knows us. Now there's a point in our life maybe if you're a follower of Jesus where you came to realize for the first time that God who is our judge knows you and knows all about you and you have to and you are going to have to give an account to him. But he says this To his people, the church, those who have come to relationship with him and said, I know you too. Now let me ask you this question. Which is more sobering? To know that God, your judge, comes and says that I know you? Or now for us as believers to know that God, our Father, comes and says, I know you? See, your posture before, before a judge is one of conviction and possibly even terror, and rightly so. But what's our posture before a father who comes and loves us and says, my child? I know you. I know what is going on. And you see, for us, as we cling to Jesus, that should bring real weight into our lives. That when God knows us, that we need to listen. And listen hard, because he comes to us not to condemn us, but to draw us closer. That we might know and honor and love a father who loves us. This loving father comes and says, I know you. And what does he know? Let's see what he says that he knows about the church in Ephesus. Uh, He comes and gives this letter, the first of the seven letters to these churches in Asia Minor. And Ephesus was the leading city of that region a big metropolitan area, and it's the church where Paul, during his missionary journeys, came and found a small group of people who knew a little bit about Jesus and developed it into a church, and he spent two years there preaching and teaching to these people. He spent longer there than he did at any other church that he planted. He was invested in them, and after he left, he left them with one of his right-hand man, Timothy, to be their pastor. And after Timothy died, John, the Apostle John, who wrote this letter, became the next pastor at Ephesus. It was an important city with a long legacy of uh, Christian teaching and high doctrine. He knows this church. And so what does he say that he knows? Look at what he affirms, verses 2 and 3, and then down in verse 6. He has a lot of very good things to say to this church. He said that you are such faithful workers in God's kingdom... I mean, he points out their toil and their patient endurance. These are people that know what it means uh, to undergo persecution, to suffer for the name of Christ, and they've hung on. They've hung in there. And Jesus recognizes that. He says that you can't bear with those who are evil, you won't tolerate any sort of moral compromise. And he said that these are a people, a church that is, that is very theologically wise. He says that they can discern error. He said, you know, there are people who came to you that were false apostles and you evaluated their teaching. You recognized that it was false and you rejected it. There are people who love the church and are people who love the truth. Down in verse 6, he mentions again that, he says you like I hate the Nicolaitans and they're a group we don't know much about them but they were spreading some sort of false teaching and the Ephesian church uh, resisted it. They get mentioned again in one of the other letters, the letter to Pergamum down in verse 15 and it's tied there with some sort of teaching that, that sort of led people into sexual immorality that might have been a part of what's going on in this teaching and that would have been surprising for the Ephesian church. These people lived in the city with the temple of Artemis that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The worship of Artemis is what drove the very heartbeat of this city. And integral to the worship of Artemis was temple prostitution. These people knew what it was to live in a very morally dark world, and they've resisted it. And Jesus points that out, and he, and, and he uh, affirms them for that. They've endured and not grown weary. One commentator puts it this way, they are pushing themselves for the kingdom. They are diligent and conscientious. See, any of us would look at them and say, you know, wow, I mean, here is a there is a faithful church. A church where living in a time when it is, in a place where it is hard to be faithful. They're doing the right thing. Okay, now we, we don't want to miss that when Jesus affirms this, he's not being ironic or cynical or sarcastic somehow. Like he's really saying to them, you have done well here. You really do love the church. You really have not grown weary. Such good things. But He doesn't stop there because he also has a critique of them, a criticism of their church, and a serious one at that. He says, um, yet I hold this against you, verse 4, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. He has serious critique for him. Uh, those of you that are students or uh, remember your student days, maybe you've had that experience where you go to class and, and the teacher is the professor is returning the papers that you turned in and that he's graded, and it returns it to you, and, and it looks like literally the, the person's his pen has exploded all over your paper. Right? I mean, there's just there's red everywhere, and and maybe you've had one of those papers where all kinds of things are marked. Your your terrible grammar. Your terrible spelling. Uh, but, but maybe it's one of those papers where you kind of pulled it out in the end. All that was terrible. A lot of ink was spilled. But you had some good solid arguments in there. There was something redeeming about your paper or conversely, maybe you've had the experience where you go and you open up your paper and you start flipping through. You're trying to get to the last page, but you're trying not to be too obvious about it. That's where the grade is. And you're flipping through and you're not seeing many red marks at all, but you get to the end and see a grade much lower than you were expecting, because there was something seriously wrong, not with your grammar, not with your spelling, but something deep in your arguments and the structure of the paper. Um, I uh, had an English professor in college named Dr. Holland, and uh, he, uh, w- one of my friends was taking a class, we were taking different classes of his same semester. And uh, so I'll tell the story about the friend and the paper he got back, uh, not mine. But he, uh, so my friend Jeff, he comes to class and they, they hand out the papers and he starts flipping through his paper. And, I, you know, none of this, you know, ink spilled everywhere, but there, there was one very significant uh, little symbol on his paper. He looks down and halfway down one of the pages on one of the margins, in, in red ink, there's this little caricature picture of somebody uh, lying on his back with his pipe sticking straight up, and under it it says, dead professor. (laughs) And that was the point at which the professor got and just said, this is too terrible to continue. And you know when you get to that kind of critique, you know that something very serious has gone wrong. And that's what we get here. I mean, we've got all this genuine praise from Jesus of look at all the good things that you do. But then he comes down to this very central thing and says, but I have this against you. You have forgotten the love that you had at first. And in one sense, there is no more serious thing that Jesus could have said to this church. And I'm struck that it is Jesus giving this vision to John to write this. And John was their pastor, right? Right? He's known as the Apostle of Love. Read First John and hear about how he sings about God's love. And he comes to this congregation and says, You have forgotten your first love. And it is incredibly important. Commentator put it this way, First love is the love that we had for Jesus when he broke through to us first and won us by his love. Jesus says that that of their hard work, patient endurance, and orthodoxy, in spite of that, the Ephesians were no longer in love with him. Affection and intimacy were gone. You see, for them, uh, when Jesus speaks these words, it does what the scripture does for us as well. Um, a number of months ago our deacons in, in an attempt to uh, embrace the fact that we are embodied creatures and that both our bodies and our souls matter. Uh, not only do we seek to care for you uh, spiritually here, we also bought a defibrillator. You know those heart paddles? Uh, and we've got it back in the office, so we just want you to know that if you start to feel a little faint, think, think something's going to kick out on you, it is okay. We are here for you. Uh, and what happens is this this little gadget's amazing because you can, it's, it's made so you don't even need a doctor around. Don't worry, Camper and I, we can do it. Trust us. Because you take the paddles out, and what you do is you put it on the person's chest, and the machine talks to you, and the very first thing it does is it runs a diagnostic of the, of the uh, waves that your heart is emitting to see if there is a problem, to see if you're, in fact having a heart attack, to see if there's something that must be corrected. And we haven't actually tried this out yet, but I think it says something like, "Stand back if, uh, <laughs> you know if the answer is that there's something serious." Well, Jesus comes to this church in Ephesus, and he puts the paddles right on him and says, "What's it going to say?" And he says, "There is a rhythm off, and you have almost flatlined. There is something serious going on, and you are going to need a serious jolt to bring you back. What's going on with them? They have forgotten their first love. Let me put it this way. A pastor I know uh, said it this way in a sermon of his on this text. He said the Ephesians, their actions of love have become detached from love itself. They've forgotten their first love. Their actions of love have become detached from love itself. They're doing all this wonderful ministry that Jesus affirms, but he says at the very same time, you have forgotten your love for me. They loved truth. They rejected false teachers. They rejected moral compromise, and yet they had lost their love for Christ even as they were doing all these right things for Christ. Now, this kind of thing happens in marriages all the time, and none of our marriages are immune You get caught up in the busyness of just making life work, caring for the kids, keeping the house straight, paying the bills. Until one day the wife looks up or the husband looks up and says, why am I doing all of this? And who is this person that I'm married to and how did we get here? What happened? Well, they've been faithful and diligent and hardworking and yet their anchor has slipped and they've drifted apart and they've lost their way. They've lost Their first love. And Jesus speaks to his very dutiful church and says, You have lost your first love. That brings up questions for us. Why do we do the good things that we do? Not the bad things, the good things that we do as individuals and as a church. The things that we're doing for God. Why do we care about good, reformed theology? Because we like being right and smart and theologically sophisticated. Or because we love Jesus? Why do we care, uh, or why do we serve in the church, or in the nursery, or on the worship team, or making meals for the sick, or adopting our college students? Is it because we secretly want people to notice the incredible sacrifices that we're making? Or is it because somewhere deep down we just need to be needed? Or is it because we love Jesus? Why do we gather on Sunday mornings like this to worship? Is it because we feel duty-bound to do that? Because we know it's good for our kids or because we've gone to church every Sunday morning of our entire life since we were small children? Uh, Or is it because, you know, mom's going to call this afternoon and ask if we went to church? Now, there are certainly some among us here who are um, in one sense, trying to find out who Jesus is and figure that out for the very first time. Um, but for those of us in here who are following Christ, why are you doing these things? Jesus asks it this way, is it because you love me? Is it because you love me? Now you probably didn't get up this morning wondering, you know, I'm about to go to church this morning. Why, why am I going? Do I really love Jesus? What's, what's driving my heart right now? And yet, that's the question that this text asks of us. Do we love Jesus? See, we see what Jesus knows. And for the Ephesians, he knows their good works, but he knows their lack of love. Um, and, And it leads us just to our second point here. What is it that Jesus really wants? He puts his finger on the problem. You have forgotten your first love. What is it that he really wants? God wants our hearts the very core of who we are, not just our good acts of service and our endurance and theological purity. He wants our hearts. He wants us not to just fear Him and obey Him and listen to Him. He wants us to love Him. He wants us to love Him. You remember the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Mary and Martha, sisters and their brother Lazarus, they have Jesus come over for a meal at their house and when he comes over, he is teaching a group of people in the house. And meanwhile, Martha is busy doing her cultural, uh, culturally appropriate job of being the one to make sure that all the food is made and everything is laid out. And she is wondering where in the world her slacker sister Mary is while she is the one baking all the pies. Where is she? In fact, she goes down the hall and she knocks on the door and she comes in the meeting where Jesus is teaching. And she says, Jesus, I'm over here working. Where's Mary What does Jesus say? Mary, you've slacked off again. Now, what does he do? He turns to Martha and he says, you know, Mary has chosen the better thing. She's here with me, right at my feet, learning and listening. It is not that the meal didn't need to be made. It's not that Martha didn't care to serve. But she was caught in that moment with a lack of love, and Mary had chosen the better thing. Or what about uh, the parable of the prodigal sons in Luke chapter 15? You remember the story. The younger son comes to his father and says, I, "Essentially, I've had enough of you, I want my inheritance now as if you had already died. And his father miraculously gives it to him. And he takes it, goes to a far off country, and he squanders all of it in his living until he finally is reduced to the point where he's eating the scraps of pigs. And he says, even my father's servants have it better than this. I'm going to go home. I'm going to apologize and see if my father will take me on as a servant. So he goes and he does that. And as he's ready with his I'm so sorry speech to his father, he doesn't, his father doesn't even let him launch into it. He says, my son, you are home. And he hugs him and he wraps his finest robe on him and puts a ring on him. And he calls his servants and he says, kill the fatted calf, invite everybody in. We are throwing a party because my son was lost and now he is found. And then what happens when the older brother comes in from the field and hears this party and he asks one of the servants what's going on and he finds out and he says to himself, you have got to be kidding me. And the father comes out and says, come into the party. And he says, come into the party. Look, I have been faithfully serving you all these years and you have never thrown a party for me. And here you do it for him? For this prodigal, this wastrel son of yours? See what he does. He points to his record of good service to the father, but showing that he has no real love for the father. See, the father has the son's labor, but not his love. He has his work, but not his heart. Jesus comes to the people here in the church of Ephesus, and he comes to us, and he says, I want your love. I want your heart. In um, Mark chapter twelve, a teacher of the law comes up to Jesus and he says, "Jesus, what? How do you sum up the law? What is, what is the way that you break down the law for us?" And Jesus quotes a passage from uh, from Deuteronomy six, verses that would have been crystal clear and in the memory of every Israelite who heard this. He goes back to a passage called the Shema, the first Hebrew word that means hear, and he says this: "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Do you hear what Jesus is saying there? And do you hear what God first said through Moses? Love is a command. God comes to us and says, I am telling you to love. To love me. To love me above all else. Now that runs straight counter to the way we tend to think about love. Because it's telling us that fundamentally love is not something you fall into, but love is something to which you give yourself. Love is active and not passive. He comes and says, love. He speaks these words to this church in Ephesus, to his people. He comes and says, you must love Now, the Bible teaches us that our fundamental problem as people until we are brought to Christ is that we simply can't love God and don't. In fact, we are running in the opposite direction. And that God must come and grab a hold of us and bring us to life and bring us to faith. So in one very real sense, as John said elsewhere, we can only love because God first loved us. But notice here that he is speaking to his church. He's speaking to his people, those who've been brought to faith. And he says, love You must love. Now that we are in this relationship, he calls it forth from us. This is the call of the Christian life. What else are we filling in the blank with? Christians are people who act right, believe right, fill in the blank. No. What does Jesus tell us here? More fundamentally, the God's people, believers are people who, whom God loves and who love God in return. Now, that does not mean, when we hear this command to come and love, that does not mean that our love is not meant to be emotionally rich and full, but it does mean that we are not to simply live at the whim of our emotions, that we are called to cultivate love for Jesus. Some of you, like us, uh, my family tried to raise a garden maybe in your backyard this summer. And during those hottest days of summer, what did you do? You go, you, you went out to that little plot of ground and, and you watered it so that the plants will grow. You tended it. You nurtured it. Now, you could water your garden all summer long. But if prior to that you had not planted some seeds of vegetables, nothing's going to grow, right? Okay? You can cultivate all day, but nothing will be there. God tells us that he must come plant that seed of faith in us before it can grow. But here is the flip side when there are seeds in the ground where that love has been planted, unless you come out on the hot days of summer and nurture it and cultivate it, those plants will not grow either, will they? See, we are called by God's grace into relationship with Him, and we are called to nurture that, to water it. He looks at us and says, My intention for you is that you would love me with all of your heart, that you would cultivate that kind of heart, that kind of love for me. Think about what we tell people or what we say in our marriage vows. If you've been to a wedding recently, you've been reminded the bride and the groom, they don't stand up here and promise that they do love the person or that they really feel great about being here or that they were going to feel love for their spouse the rest of their lives. What do they do? They stand up here and they vow that they will give themselves in love to the other person, come what may, until one of us dies. That's what the vow of marriage is. Not that I will feel something, but I am committing to do something to love you, come what may. Or maybe another example. One, uh, one of our children has just started taking gymnastics in very beginner class. So, you know, they're doing somersaults. They're starting to walk on the balance beam. And, and so I'm there watching the other day, just these kids just delighted in it, loving it, having the greatest time. But then over on another part of this gymnastics gym, there's a girl who's uh, older and is practicing her routine on her own and obviously into competitive gymnastics. Uh, she looked like she's about 13. You, know, you can never tell a gymnast. She might have been 30. I have no idea. But there she is. I, so on, on the one side, I'm, I'm seeing these kids doing somersaults and walking on the balance beam. And then this girl kind of runs, and she starts doing these handsprings and back flips, and she's spinning, and you know suddenly she lands. And I'm like, how in the world did that kid just do that? Well, that person who has grown in her love and skill in gymnastics, who has given herself to it, and who is becoming excellent in her sport, she started right over where my child did, doing somersaults and walking on the balance beam. But what happened? As her love for gymnastics grew, her dedication and her devotion to it did as well. There are no doubt days where she came to work out and thought, this is the last thing that I want to be doing. My body can't take this abuse much longer. This is hard and arduous work, but she kept after it that she might become excellent. Now, here's the thing. If at the end of the day, as she grows in her sport, all she has is her rock-solid discipline, if her love for the sport does not grow as her skill and discipline do, then she will never make it all the way. The day will come when she will say, I have had enough of this, and it is not worth it, anymore. You see, as she grows as an athlete, she must grow in her love for her sport as well. And if these little kids doing somersaults in the circle are ever going to get where she is, then they're going to have to grow in their skill, but they're going to have to grow in their love. Maybe you had a childhood delight in Jesus, but one that did not grow up as you did. Your understanding of him, your picture of him stayed static at age five or 15 or 20, And you continue to age and experience life and ask deeper questions and mature. But your understanding of Jesus didn't grow accordingly and your heart has dimmed because you're living a grown-up life and all you've got to fall back on is a childhood Jesus. You hear what John and Jesus tells us here, that at the center of Christianity stands this relationship of love, of love first of God for us, but a love that's meant to come and evoke and create a love in us for God. That's why he's come, to rescue and redeem us, that we might come into love with him, and that's a love that must be grown and cultivated. That's what Christianity is about at its core. Did you know that? Or did you think it was about following the rules? going to church, and giving to the poor. We're called to do all those things, of course, but they are expressions of this central reality. We are called to love God who has first loved us. This idea is so central that Jesus puts it here in his very first letter, that we might have that resounding in our mind even as we read all the rest of the letters that we'll find in these next couple chapters and he has it right here front and center to the church of Ephesus and along with it he also brings a sobering warning did you see that part he says you have lost your first love repent or else your lampstand will be removed now what's he saying you know, if you're a parent that we, we try and often fail to try to, when, when, there's a, when there's a breach, when our kids act out, when something goes very wrong, you, you try to bring consequences that kind of match the, the problem. Um, you know, so when you're, I won't even try to come up with an example. I've got thousands. But you know what it's like when, you, you know, when, when, when your child does something, when he speaks back to you okay, then what's going to be the appropriate consequence that's going to drive home the need in that child's life to learn respect and discipline? You try to match those things. Let me say that this consequence is matched to the problem that is going on here. It is not as if Jesus simply picked something arbitrary to spank his children, the wayward Ephesian church with. No. What does he say? He says, if you will not restore me to your central love, if you will not if you will not live out of that love for me, then at the end of the day, all of your good works really don't amount to anything. In fact, if you are not caught and captured by this burning love for me, then this lampstand that you are, this church that you are, the lamp is already going dim. The light is already going out. You see, you're meant to be a light to the world, but you have nothing to share because you do not know this love of Jesus. And he's saying, if you continue down this path then the final verdict will be simply what you are moving yourself towards now. The lampstand goes out, and it's removed. But he comes and warns them that they might turn around, that they might reignite their hearts, that they might re-engage. How are we going to do that? When we look in ourselves individually and as a church and see maybe a similar lack of love, what does Jesus tell us to do how do we get out of this tailspin? How do our hearts come alive again? Well, the text tells us four things here. In the first three of those, we find um, in verse 7, excuse me, in verse uh, 5. First three things, he says, Rem- remember, repent, and redo. First, remember. Remember the height from which you have fallen. He speaks to his people and says, remember what it was like when you felt your love for me. Remember what it was like when you first came to faith, maybe, or that significant place in life where Christ was as close as your very breath. And it might have been in a time of intense suffering, but you knew that Jesus was there and had you. He says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Remember when you knew that you could not make it through the day without praying because you were so dependent on God. Remember when you had such a thirst to be with him that you got yourself up early in the morning, not simply out of duty and there's a place for that, but because you love Christ and you knew in that morning that you had to come to your father, that you had to open up the pages of scripture, that you had to learn more about this God with whom you'd fallen in love. Remember when you were longing to pray because it was the outpouring of your heart, when you couldn't wait to come and worship with God's people because you wanted to sing, you wanted to give expression to this love that had been kindled in your heart. He says, remember, remember, if you are a believer, no matter how uh, high-strung or low-strung your personality might be, if you're someone who has faith in Christ, at some point you've at least had a glimmer of this, right? When it captured you, and it captured your heart, and it captured your imagination. And what does Jesus say the first step is here? He says, remember when you first said, I am forgiven, I am set free, I am a child loved by my Father. Remember the height from which you've fallen. The next thing he says is, repent Turn around. That's what repent means in the Bible. It doesn't mean make sure that you muster up enough uh, tears and guilty feelings so that you can feel appropriately bad. I mean, after all, Jesus has died for you and you're returning his love like this. Whip up a little good guilt, right? He does not say that to them. What does he say? He says, do the work of repentance. Wherever your heart feels right now, turn around. Own up to what is true. God, my heart is cold and I've turned it away. And I don't know how to reignite the switch. You've got to come do something. But I confess to you that I've let it slip away. Forgive me. Turn me around. Come and repent. When you come and repent, you come with the thing itself and not your list of excuses about how you got where you are. I was reminded of that this week. Is my wife pointed out something to me, uh, as she often does and so graciously. It was this gracious word of, did you notice that? And the first thing out of my mouth, well, wait, I mean, did you know what happened today? And blah, 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 and excuses, excuses, excuses. And she's giving me that blank look like, why are we talking about this? I'm just, this is not about your excuses about what's going on and you're loved and turn around and... So, you start to blather on and on, and your spouse gives you that quizzical look. Eventually, you just sort of stop and go, Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> right? What does Christ tell us? Repent and turn around and ask God to come and restart our cold hearts. And then, uh, what does he say next? He says, Redo. Verse five Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent. And do the works you did at first. Redo, restart the things that characterize your life when you first knew this love. Redo the actions and impulses of love. Maybe you've had this experience, or uh, had someone come to you of, of a married couple who's having struggles in their marriage, and they come and say this to their counselor, or their friend, or you. You know, they say that you know, you know, maybe the, the love they just don't feel it anymore and, and what do you say to them you say you know well here's what you need to do you just need to kind of wait until those feelings sort of magically return again and then if they come back then you should really re-engage in your marriage Now, good marriage counselors don't do that what do they do they say turn around they say here you've been neglecting your spouse you're letting love die he said they say do the things you did at first Remember when you loved this person and you would do anything for them. Remember when you were students together in college and you cut class just so you could walk this person to class and they said, you're sure you don't have anything to do? And you're like, no, just that exam I'm skipping right now for you. You know, uh, Remember when you actually brought flowers. Remember when you actually left a note for your spouse. Remember when you actually served them in joy. What does a good marriage counselor says do? He says, start doing those things again. Not so that you can get caught up in the first few verses of this chapter, so that you can simply do dry duty, but so that you can pursue love, begin by acting in love. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, remember and then do the things that you did at first, not dry duty, but actions of love, poured out in love for your Savior. Remember the story of a sinful woman who had been changed and turned around by Jesus. And in spite of her social ostracism and her shame, what does she do? She comes into a dinner party where Jesus is a guest of honor. And he is there with all the leaders of uh, the community, and as soon as she walks in the door, everybody looks and knows there is a sinner. She walks over behind Jesus as he's reclining at the table. She takes out a jar of perfume, which would have been her entire wealth, and she breaks it and pours it over his feet as this act of effusive love for the one who has first loved her it didn't make any sense not to anybody in that room it was all gone not to anyone except to jesus said she's come she's anointing me for burial and she's done this because she has been loved and now she loves much or zacchaeus the tax collector remember we little zacchaeus Hated by everyone, cheating everyone in his life. Jesus breaks into his life and turns him around. He comes to faith, and what does he do? He says, all the people that I have cheated, I will go back and I will repay them four times what I stole of the, from them. And then everything that's left that I've made, I'm going to take every half of everything that I have and I'm going to give it to the poor. Why? So Jesus will be impressed? No, because Jesus has come and turned him around. And his response, the response of his heart, is this expensive, extravagant, effusive love. Jesus says, remember and redo the things that you did at first. And then there's a fourth thing. Remember, repent, redo. And then we get to remember again. This time, not simply remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember the one who has grabbed a hold of you. Remember the gospel. Here's the way John says it elsewhere in 1 John. He says, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God has loved us first. And if we are going to love him again, we must remember that love that that has come and broken into our life and brought light, that started this whole deal, that he has come and loved us first. We must remember and be people who eat and drink and nourish ourselves on the good news of Christ's love for us. And we see it right here in this passage passage when he says to remember where you are headed. You see what he says at the very end in his encouragement. He says he who has an ear to hear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers The one who holds on, the one who loves, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. When Adam and Eve fell, the very thing that they were separated from, the tree of life, in the center of the garden, they were barred from that forever until one would come who would open the way, that they might come to the heart of the garden again. And Jesus says, that is I. I am the one who has come that you might be forgiven. Don't you see my love has broken into your life? Hang on. Stir up your love again. What waits you at the end? The very tree of life. You will come and eat in my presence forever. It's this metaphor, an image, yes, but an image of what? An eternity spent with Christ. This one who loves us, that calls us to love him. The very consummation of this relationship that he's begun with us now. A a relationship that is to be characterized by this kind of love. He looks at this church who does so much good stuff, good stuff. But he comes and says, I have to tell you, you have forgotten the heart of it. You must love. You must love me. You have forgotten your first love. And so he says, remember and repent and redo and remember the beauty of the gospel. Let me conclude with this. John Stott put it this way. Jesus Christ is not content to leave the church of Ephesus, nor any church, wandering in the deserts of lovelessness. He will recall her to her sense. He will bring her back to the oasis of love. And He will do that for us. And He will do that for you. The letter ends this way, as each of these seven letters will end. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to us. Let's pray. Father, we do come and confess our varying shades of lackluster love. Would you come in and reignite our hearts? Would you hold before our eyes the beauty of the gospel, not just as a theological concept, but as the very burning center of reality that you have come for us, that we might know you, that you've come and called us not simply to obedience and not simply to worship, but to love. You love us and you want our love in return. We were made for this. We are being remade for this. Would you do your good work in us? Would you reignite our hearts? We pray and ask this. In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, amen.